0: Welcome to the FDD events podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Friday, December 8th. Israel has been at war for 63 days. I'm Jonathan Schanzer, senior vice president for research at FDD. And welcome back to the FDD morning brief. Yesterday marked month two uh, of this crisis. The storyline has taken lots of twists and turns. Our goal is to navigate all of them here at the FTD Morning Brief. That's why we get up at the crack of dawn to track the news out of the Middle East like it's our business because, well, it's our business. So let's get down to business. Today I'll be joined by Dalia Ziada, uh, an Egyptian researcher who stoked the ire of the Egyptian government, not to mention some Salafists, because she criticized Hamas. But before we speak to Dahlia, let's take a quick look at the latest. Israel is operating in the area known as Rimal in the Gaza Strip this morning. The IDF found a large amount of weapons at the Al-Azhar University there. It also found a Hamas communications center near a hospital. Sirens sounded in northern, central, and southern Gaza this morning. It seemed like the entire country was under attack less than an hour ago. Gal Eisenkot, the son of former IDF chief of staff Gadi Eisenkot, was killed in fighting yesterday, Israeli uh, media reported. The outpouring of support for Eisenkot has been overwhelming. I watched the funeral this morning. The IDF is still without question the People's Army of Israel. Every family makes unimaginable sacrifices for the security and the safety of the state, including the sons of former chiefs of staff. An estimated 150 Palestinians surrendered uh, yesterday in Gaza. The photos are remarkable. It's unclear how many of them were Hamas fighters, but if surrenders continue, this could be a turning point in the war. Prisoners are expected to provide the IDF with important information about Hamas assets and activities in the Gaza Strip. The Israelis agreed to open the Karim Shalom crossing on the Gaza border yesterday. This comes as the White House is pushing the Israelis to do more to mitigate the humanitarian crisis. Of course, it's not all on Israel. Hamas is still diverting a huge amount of aid that does make it in. And on top of that, the UN Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, has failed to adequately disperse the aid it receives. Hezbollah killed an Israeli civilian yesterday with another anti-tank missile fired across the border. The group took responsibility for at least four different attacks yesterday. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned the Iran-backed terror group that if attacks continue, southern Lebanon could soon look like Gaza. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Keep watching that northern border, folks. And now, here are your top three big stories to watch today. Headline one, the Israelis believe they may be close to the hideouts of Hamas leaders Yahya Sinwar and Mohammed Deif. Here's what we know. Sources I spoke to yesterday seem to think that the two Hamas leaders were hiding just below the ground where the IDF was fighting. Mohammed Dave, you'll recall, is the military commander of Hamas who survived multiple attempts on his life by the IDF. Yahya Sinwar is the leader of Hamas who managed to convince the Israelis that he wanted quiet in Gaza before pulling off the worst terrorist attack ever executed on Israeli soil. Both are marked men. So what's next? It's unclear whether these two men are resigned to their fate or if they will try to flee the Gaza Strip. If they do, they will almost certainly head south through the tunnels to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. Unfortunately, Egypt's government has allowed these tunnels to operate for several years now. They've enabled Hamas to rearm. They also allow Hamas personnel to come and go. Will Cairo crack down on these tunnels and help Israel catch two of their most wanted? I doubt it, but we'll talk to Dahlia about this momentarily. Headline two, The U.S. and Saudi Arabia teamed up yesterday to shoot down Houthi missiles or maybe it was a drone over the Red Sea. Here's the deal. U.S.-Saudi military cooperation is very encouraging. It's even more encouraging to see the Saudis targeting hostile aircraft heading toward Israel. We might read this as a sign that Saudi-Israeli normalization is still on the table. All of this occurred on the heels of new U.S. sanctions on 13 different people and entities for supporting the Houthis. Also on the split screen, however, was Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman warmly welcoming Russia's Vladimir Putin to Riyadh last week, or this week actually. Russia is, of course, collaborating with Iran on drone technology. So now what? Who the heck knows? The White House still won't redesignate the Houthis as a terrorist organization. You'll recall that Biden reversed the Trump administration's designation within days of taking office. So while the Treasury announcement was welcome, the administration is still tying itself in knots. Sanctions are all well and good, but the U.S. remains reticent to, uh, to respond with force when the Houthis attack. The Saudis, who have been the primary target of the Iran-backed group in Yemen for a decade, also don't want an escalation, and Israel is too far from the action to respond on its own. So the regime in Iran spells weakness, and that's never a good thing. I would expect attacks to continue. And finally, headline three, six terrorists were reportedly killed today in the northern west bank of Tubas, the town of Tubas. Here's what we know. The west bank is still seeing lots of unrest. Two nights ago, the Israelis arrested 21 people in the West Bank for Hamas activity. Yesterday, an armed terrorist was caught in the settlement of Ilan More near Nablus. Also yesterday, four people were arrested in southern Israel for smuggling weapons from Jordan. And as I have noted here in the morning brief several times, that's on top of an estimated 2,000 arrests over the last two months and more than 250 deaths from the targeting uh, of militants and through firefights in the West Bank. So now what? Before the war, people like me were watching the West Bank carefully because of a spike in terror activity. October 7th obviously shifted our attention, but we can't ignore the other side of the Palestinian divide. Precious little has been revealed about security cooperation between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli security services, but it does appear to be happening. And that is a good thing. The Palestinian Authority may be ineffectual, it may be corrupt, it may be thoroughly despised by the Palestinians, but this is not the time to let things collapse. That said, it's also not time to hand Gaza over to the Palestinian Authority, as some have suggested. Maybe one day, but that day is not now. Those are your headlines. I'm now pleased to welcome Dalia Ziada. Dalia is a researcher from Egypt. She is the author of The Curious Case of the Three-Legged Wolf. Egypt, Military, Islamism, and Liberal Democracy, which she published in
1: 2019. Welcome, Dahlia. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm very happy to be with you.
0: Well, Dahlia, you've had a wild story from what we all understand. I've been following you on social media since the U.S. broke down. What happened in Egypt to you after October 7th?
1: Oh, a lot has been happening in Egypt after October 7 and all over the Middle East, actually. Uh, I believe like what Hamas did, the massacres that Hamas committed on October 7 has created a momentum for all the Islamist movements that uh, has been working under the ground for at least the past decade or so to come back again and lead the public opinion. And unfortunately, they found it a ripe opportunity to do that as soon as Hamas committed this crime. uh, They found it as an excuse to come up and bring back again to the surface the Palestinian cause, which has always been used by the Islamists to recruit people, to gain sympathy, and also to gain some kind of legitimacy to their violent activities, not only against Israel, but against the rest of the region. But the biggest surprise is that most of the states in the region, like most of the leaderships, have been bending to this extremist rhetoric in the street and somehow indirectly uh, encouraging this uh, Islamist uh, Islamist movement to rise again which will eventually hurt them as much as it is hurting Israel right now
0: and you personally have been targeted by some of these extremists in Egypt what happened there
1: yeah actually i i at the beginning of of the massacre i didn't actually watch i was watching it from the egyptian and the arab media i did not watch it from like the western media or actually any source that can provide me the truth so i thought it's just another clash between uh soldiers from israel and militants from hamas that happens every now and then uh, because this is how it was introduced in our media by the way but soon after i was invited to a, a video conference by the ministry of foreign affairs in israel and the ministry of defense where hundreds of arab journalists and researchers were also attending and they showed us the real videos of what happened on that day uh, footage collected from the houses from the streets from even the mobile phones of the militants of hamas proving or showing that Uh, showing how brutal Hamas were, raping women, attacking children, and and the elderly, and blood everywhere, it was horrific. Horrific in every way. So I just came to my social media accounts and I told the truth. Uh, I have a good following there and actually it somehow attracted attention. Then I was invited to uh, an interview with the think tank in Israel. It's uh, the, Institute of, uh, the Institute of National Security Studies with Tel Aviv University. The interview went viral, and this raised a horrible backlash against me from both sides. One side is uh, the extremist side, the radicals. Some of them went to my mother's house, like, looking for me. They want to, you know, kill me or something. And the other side was the, I would call them the deep state, or the establishment in Egypt, who were very angry that I said I'm supportive to Israel. Unfortunately, up till today, despite all the good relationship on the, on the surface, again, between Egypt and Israel, in the deep state, there is a lot of controversy and a lot of, a lot of tension about Israel being a friend or an enemy or a historic enemy, but now like a, a pragmatic friend for right now, you know? So, so I think I like, that's why I have been facing a backlash from both sides, uh, after this.
0: I'm sorry to hear what you've gone through. It does sound like it's been a, a challenge and I, I hope you're staying safe. Um, mm-hmm. l- let's talk a little bit about what's going on with the CC regime. You talked a bit about that deep state, if you will, and we know that there are those within the Egyptian bureaucracy that still harbor a lot of distrust toward Israel, and there is also obviously a lot of conflicted uh, feelings about the Palestinians themselves. Let's just talk about the refugee issue for a minute. The Sisi regime has refused to allow Palestinians to seek refuge on the other side of the border. In other words, there was a lot of talk at the beginning of the war about allowing the Palestinians of Gaza to escape the fighting temporarily and to find shelter in the Sinai Peninsula and then to be returned back. But the Sisi regime has rejected this. What's the thinking behind the Egyptian regime here? Why, why will they not provide that kind of help to the Palestinians?
1: Actually, it's shocking, and it's the first time this happens in our history. Even in previous regimes, uh, despite their fear of Hamas leakage or the jihadist movements' le- uh, militants' leakage to Sinai, they have always provided um, a safe place for the Palestinians in Sinai, and they have always opened the borders because it's a big humanitarian issue. But this time, I think. Part of it has to do with the confusion that's happening on the policy-making level in Egypt since the beginning of the war. Because at the very beginning, there was some kind of of silence from from the leadership, from the regime, uh, and also from other authorities in the country that are leading, including the military, the intelligence. And so everyone was silent. They did not want to intervene um somehow i would say they were turning their heads away until israel finishes hamas but when things started to get uh very intense in media promoting uh that israel is just killing the palestinians randomly or targeting civilians rather than targeting hamas and so this created a state of, of outrage among the public fueled by, you know, Islamist pressure, Islamist rhetoric And somehow the regime feared that this outrage may be directed at them, especially we are now at a time when Egypt is suffering a political crisis and economic crisis. And the popularity of the president is not as strong as it was 10 years ago or, or seven years ago, even so if this outrage plus the anger coming from the economic bad situation is combined together and directed at the regime this is a source of fear that's why we saw the rhetoric has it changed afterwards and the Sisi started to speak about supporting the resistance movement after calling it the i, I mean hamas after calling it uh, the terrorist organization and then uh, showing sometimes exaggerated uh, support to the Palestinian cause in the past few weeks. This somehow served, served the regime. But also one of the things that that they highlighted and emphasized very much in Egypt, also in service to this, uh, um, uh, this, uh, this, this concept of keeping the regime in power, of giving the military importance to the Egyptian people and so on, is the idea of that the Palestinians' entry to Sinai is a threat to Egypt's national security by saying that if they entered Hamas will enter with them and then will use the, the ground of Sinai or the land of Sinai as a base to attack Israel and this will again like uh, incite retaliation from Israel and cause a war between Egypt and Israel eventually. It's an exaggerated story but it has some truth in it. because. Today, uh, yesterday, Ham- uh, one of Hamas leaders came on Al Jazeera and he said, in case we entered Sinai, the, the desert of Sinai will not swallow us, but we will use it as a base to even a more solid base to continue our attacks on Israel. So, yes, this story is, is tough and, and very big, but it has uh, some truth to it, unfortunately.
0: I'm going to ask you one more question before we wrap up here, Dahlia. The, the question of tunnels uh, that apparently are still stretching from the Gaza Strip into, uh, uh, into Sinai, uh, under the Rafah Crossing, around the Rafah Crossing, what's known as the Philadelphia Corridor. How is it? I mean, I remember when uh, right after the, uh, the so-called Arab Spring, when Sisi came to power, he shut down a huge number of these tunnels. He destroyed them. Somehow they're operating again. And somehow uh, Hamas is using them. People are coming in and out of Sinai into Gaza. Uh, we believe that these tunnels are also being used to rearm and resupply Hamas. What is the story here? How is it that the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian government, has not cracked down on these tunnels consistently?
1: Right. Actually, you know, to understand why the fight against the tunnels has stopped in Egypt, we have first to understand that it's in the mindset of the Egyptian state and people, as well as the mindset of most of Arabs, by the way, is that these terrorist organizations, Hamas, Jihad, Islamic Jihad, and so on, are terrorist organizations only if they attack Egypt or Arab countries, or if they form a threat to Egypt and Arab countries. But if they attack Israel, they are heroes, and they are like the resistance movement, and so and we should not intervene in what they're doing. And sometimes in the past, they used even to encourage them. But so what happened is that when Hamas was a threat to Egypt, when the Islamic Jihad was a threat to Egypt, Egypt took severe actions to uh, close the tunnels, flood them with water, it was it was a fight that took months against these tunnels and they were able to close them eventually in 2015 and by the way the israeli military helped a lot in this at least with joining the egyptian military in launching uh, air strikes uh, like specific air strikes on uh, these tunnels and also uh, uh, helping them get rid of some some of the houses that were built on the border between Egypt and uh, Gaza with the purpose to encourage more, um, uh, encourage Hamas also like some kind, give Hamas some kind of a legitimate entry into Sinai afterwards. This has stopped since then and Hamas started to build, this is something maybe not many people in the West know that not all of the tunnels are built in open areas. Actually, some of them are built inside houses of just ordinary civilians in Sinai. So the Egyptian military cannot just go and destroy a house and because there is a tunnel underneath. So as difficult as it has become, and Hamas also has changed its its strategies uh, of how to build these tunnels and use them through the houses, again hiding among the, uh, the civilians of Sinai, has led to the difficulties that we are seeing today, that Egypt is no more able to uh, control these tunnels, but this does not refute the fact that Egypt already knows about these tunnel, tunnels and knows that there has been women smuggled through it and other, other uh, not only women, sometimes cars, sometimes food, etc. And uh, The thing is that I I believe the warnings that Hamas gave to Israel at the beginning or before the war that be careful something big is happening is because Egypt have been monitoring somehow this smuggling of weapons and so this may lead to something big.
0: Okay, well, we're going to leave it there. Dalia, I want to thank you for joining us today. We'll have you back sometime soon.
1: Thank you so much, Jonas, and I'm happy to be with you.
0: Okay, here are the other stories FDD is following today. My colleague Craig Singleton is tracking the Deterrent Act, a bipartisan bill that passed the House of Representatives this week. The bill leveraged Craig's groundbreaking work on Chinese Communist Party influence in higher education, but it also enhances reporting requirements for foreign countries, including Qatar, Russia, and Iran, to disclose financial contributions to U.S. universities. After this week's disastrous hearing with university presidents on anti-Semitism, it certainly seems smart for the Senate to take this up. My colleagues Anthony Ruggiero and Matt Zuhaig are out with a new piece in The Hill today, arguing that Congress should challenge the Biden administration's problematic agreement with Chinese leader Xi Jinping on the deadly drug uh, known as fentanyl. They argue that it's time to punish Chinese money launderers as well as the banks who finance the drug that is responsible for 84% of overdose deaths among teens here in the United States. And finally, FTD is watching the presidents of Russia and Iran who met in Moscow. As we know, Iran has been providing drones and missiles to help Russia wage its war of aggression in Ukraine. Russia has been helping Iran by helping uh, to buy its oil and defending the regime at the UN. My colleagues Cliff May, FTD's founder and president, as well as Ivana Stradner, have made a persuasive argument that this is the axis of tyranny, together with China and North Korea. More must be done to undermine the relationship between these anti-Western regimes. Read all of this terrific work on our website, fdd.org. Follow our work on X at FDD, and please make your tax-deductible contribution before the end of the year at ftdorg slash invest. Join us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for more FDD morning briefs, Our next guest will be Jacob Nagel, former National Security Advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Until then, thanks for tuning in. I'll be watching the war, but I hope everyone else has a restful weekend. I'm Jonathan Schanzer, signing off for FDD.